This is Inside Geneva. I'm your host, Imogen Folks, and this is a Swissinfo.ch production. From the world's humanitarian capital, we explore the challenges facing our planet. Whether it's migration or climate change, human rights or global health, I'll be taking you behind the scenes for some straight talk with the people facing up to those challenges. In today's programme, we're going to discuss the much-heralded intervention by US Secretary of State Mike Pompeo into the human rights debate with his report on what he calls unalienable rights. These rights, these unalienable rights are essential. They are a foundation upon which this country was built. They are central to who we are and to what we care about as Americans. The Declaration of Independence itself is the most important statement of human rights ever written. It made human freedom and human equality our nation's central ideas. So what is this exactly? Is it an attempt to maintain a U.S. presence on human rights now that Washington has left the United Nations Human Rights Council? And what exactly are unalienable rights? Are they different from those in the Universal Declaration on Human Rights and the many human rights treaties we have nowadays? Here to discuss all this, I'm joined by Andrew Clapham, human rights expert with Geneva's Graduate Institute. The problem is that the report seems to think that there's a proliferation of treaties and that there are now too many rights. And this attempt to reduce it back to what the Americans considered to be rights In 1776, things have moved on in the last 200 years. We'll also be talking to journalist Nick Cumming-Bruce, contributor to the New York Times here in Geneva. What I find a little surprising was that an administration led by a president who has shown little interest or understanding of human rights should embark on this kind of initiative. And we'll get reaction from human rights groups with Ken Roth. Executive Director of Human Rights Watch. What he's trying to do is to prioritize religious freedom over the rights he doesn't like, particularly the rights of LGBT people not to face discrimination and the right of women to have reproductive freedom. Well, as you heard from those initial comments, first reactions to Mike Pompeo's initiative have been sceptical, to say the least. So before we get into our in-depth discussion about why that is exactly... Let's get a little clarity from Mike Pompeo himself about what he thinks unalienable rights actually are. It's important for every American, for every American diplomat, to recognize how our founders understood unalienable rights. The report emphasizes foremost among these rights are property rights and religious liberty. Andrew Clapham, I'm going to come to you first. Most of us will have looked at the Universal Declaration on Human Rights And it goes quite a lot further than property rights and religious liberty. What's your perspective on this intervention by the US? Where does it fit into our existing human rights mechanisms? So the report indeed goes back to the unalienable rights in the American Declaration of Independence. But it goes further than that. It goes through the Bill of Rights in the US Constitution, and it links up quite well to the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. But as you've said, and as has been hinted, The problem, and I think it's a false problem, is that the report seems to think that there's a proliferation of treaties and that there are now too many rights. And this attempt to reduce it back to what we considered rights or the Americans considered to be rights in 1776 is 
in a way, problematic because things have moved on in the last 200 years. Nick, maybe let's turn to you because you and I have covered the the United States diplomacy around human rights in Geneva for many years now. The US actually has withdrawn from the UN Human Rights Council. So were you surprised to see this intervention from the US? Well, we knew it was coming, so no surprise there. I suppose what I found a little surprising was that an administration led by a president who has shown little interest or understanding of human rights should embark on this kind of initiative. And then I think it was a bit surprising that um, if you look at the rather lofty goals and language in which Secretary of State Pompeo couched it, and I mean, he's calling it a, one of the most profound examinations or re-examinations of human rights for nearly three quarters of a century, he then has composed this commission of a, a, a rather narrowly focused group of academics, um, some of whom have no particular expertise on human rights. He hasn't included anybody from any of the mainstream human rights organizations. And the people, the commissions all come from very well-defined and, and conservative positions on key social and issues. So it, it's strangely um, narrow focus. And then I think, I, I suppose the big surprise was that for a, a report which starts with the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and talks about the universality and indivisibility of human rights, it then goes into language about selective engagement with human rights and raising issues of national sovereignty that can only really give comfort to the kinds of really seriously human rights abusing states that they've identified in the report. Is that what concerns you, Ken Roth? Because I think it'd be be fair to say that um, the release of this report attracted a lot of comment from human rights groups and none of it was especially positive. So let's go to Ken Roth of Human Rights Watch. What are your particular issues? Human rights groups view what Pompeo is doing as profoundly dangerous to the human rights cause, because what he's basically advocating is a pick and choose approach to human rights. You know, he views the body of human rights law not as something that he has to follow, but rather as something that he can select from. And, you know, that approach is music to the ears of autocrats. You know, that's what the Chinese government is trying to do. That's what governments around the world that don't want to follow human rights They love this approach because they can say, well, we're not going to bother with the right of free expression. We're not going to bother with the right of um, the rights of women. And, you know, one of the clever dodges that Pompeo uses is that he lionizes the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which was a very important document, but it was just a declaration. It's not binding. It's not a treaty. And he does that because if it's just a declaration, anybody can interpret it. But what he ignores is that that declaration has then been codified through a series of treaties over the years that in each case, you know, upwards of three quarters of the governments of the world have ratified, although often not the United States. And so this is not just, you know, some vague declaration that you can interpret or not in one way or another, but rather, um, you know, human rights law is a very solid, concrete, specific body of requirements. And Pompeo just ignores all of that by adopting his, you know, his a la carte approach to human rights. Andrew Clapham, the thing is, though, in Mike Pompeo's report, he does talk about the proliferation of human rights. 
It's true, though, isn't it, that when the Universal Declaration was drafted, some of the rights that are kind of on the table now were not even being dreamt of at that time. Yes, that's right. But, I mean, we have human progress. So the complaint about new treaties and the proliferation of treaties, in fact, there aren't that many. Uh, The treaties that I now have to teach that I didn't teach 20 years ago are the Treaty for Rights of People with Disabilities. And the United States itself accepts that this is an important group of people. And as individuals, they have a right to dignity, just as one has a dignity to exercise one religious freedom. And they've even signed that treaty. So this sort of idea that um, people are inventing new rights and the whole system is going to collapse is, in my view, rather silly. If we could actually talk about the actual rights that are being implemented, why not? There's a proposal now for a treaty on the rights of the elderly. Why not, in the era of COVID, start to think about what are the particular needs and rights that the elderly ought to be able to enjoy? So rather than complaining about experts and complaining about unelected bodies and complaining about a proliferation of rights, I think it's better to actually discuss what are we actually talking about and why not? The fact that it wasn't imagined in 1948 and that nobody with disabilities was participating in the negotiations doesn't mean we shouldn't talk about it now. Well, but let's just listen to a little bit more of what Mike Pompeo had to say about this. For example, here he talks about rights clashing with one another. We must therefore be vigilant that human rights discourse not be corrupted or hijacked or used for dubious or malignant purposes. International institutions designed and built to protect human rights have drifted from their original mission. As human rights claims have proliferated, some claims have come into tension with one another, provoking questions and clashes about which rights are entitled to gain respect. Nation states and international institutions remain confused about their respective responsibilities concerning human rights. So where is he going with that? Is he putting up a a kind of balance between the pro-life, the anti-abortionists, and women's right to choose, these things do clash with each other. Ken, let's ask you, is he opening up a real can of worms here? Does he want to open up a can of worms? He absolutely wants to open this can of worms because what he's trying to do is to prioritize religious freedom over the rights he doesn't like, particularly the rights of LGBT people not to face discrimination, and the right of women to have reproductive freedom. And he does this by saying that, you know, my religious views are somehow offended by LGBT rights, so therefore I get to discriminate against LGBT people, or my religious views are offended by um, women getting an abortion, so I get to prohibit that in my state. Um, So it's a very extremist view of, of reproductive freedom. One of the reasons that he's so eager to deal in broad principles like the Universal Declaration and not look at the human rights treaties, the actual law, is that when you look at the law, um, it has been interpreted in a way that is contrary to Pompeo's interpretation. Um, The interpretation, it says, in essence, religious freedom means you can believe whatever you want, but you can't impose those beliefs on other people. That's the limit of religious liberty. And the way that interpretation takes place is through something known, it's interpreted by something called the Human Rights Committee, which in essence is like the Supreme Court for this particular treaty. But, you know, Pompeo, he doesn't exactly say this, but in essence, he objects to this Human Rights Committee because the U.S. government doesn't control it. 
The U.S. government gets to vote for its members along with every other government that has ratified the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. And somehow that makes it illegitimate. Um, but you know, it's not really that different from, say, the way the U.S. Supreme Court operates. You know, I happen to um, reside ordinarily in New York. So I get to vote for New York's two senators, two out of 100 senators who choose who the members of the U.S. Supreme Court are. But Pompeo is in essence saying, you know, the U.S. Supreme Court is illegitimate because I didn't get to vote for um, all 100 senators who actually chose the members of that court, which is obviously ridiculous. That's not the way a democratic institution operates. And so this clever dodge of trying to circumvent the Human Rights Committee is what allows him to bypass law and go back to this very fluid, interpretable declaration that he likes to trumpet over. Nevertheless, I mean, the United States is still a superpower, perhaps a diminished superpower, latterly. But Nick, how do you think this initiative from the US is kind of being received by other diplomats in Geneva? I mean, let's not forget, it's not that long ago that Hillary Clinton, as Secretary of State, came to the Human Rights Council and put forward rights for LGBT people. A couple of years after that, we had Sergei Lavrov, the Russian foreign minister, get up at the Human Rights Council and talk about the paramount rights of the family. And we know what, what, what limits he was setting there about how far Russia might be prepared to go in terms of rights for the LGBT community, which was not very far. And now America seems to be going in the other direction. Well, your question sort of implies that this is a, a clear policy position now from, from the United States. And we shouldn't forget, first, that this is in any event just a draft. It isn't yet a final document. Uh, we don't know when the final document's going to come. We don't even know if it'll come before the election. If it doesn't come before the election, what does it represent in terms of the United States? The only reaction I've had for, was from uh, a European diplomat who said uh, they found it all rather strange and, and nutty and that they didn't really feel there was anything to, to engage with or respond to at this point uh, when the, the future of this administration, the future life of this administration will be decided in November and may not continue very long. Let me just play the devil's advocate a little bit, though. I'm going to play you one, uh, one further clip from Mike Pompeo. Now, if you believe our founding principles should inform foreign policy, and especially the promotion of unalienable rights, we have to lay down a framework, a framework for how to think about this around the world. And so we are forced to grapple with the tough choices about which rights to promote and how to think about this. Americans have not only unalienable rights, but also positive rights, rights granted by governments, courts, multilateral bodies. Many are worth defending in light of our founding. Others aren't. Now here he's highlighting this thing about hierarchy of human rights. And if I just play devil's advocate for a moment, I've met lots and lots of people who say that kind of right is ridiculous. In Europe, this is a common argument, and the, the response can sometimes be, well, what about my right to live in peace? If somebody's done that, they don't have any rights at all. I mean, I, I feel that although perhaps you and I might not agree with this, Mike Pompeo, if, with some people, is pushing at an open door of uncertainty and the feeling of grievance. Andrew, maybe I can ask you, how can proponents of the universality of human rights make the case and shut that door that Mike Pompeo has opened 
which is quite divisive that, you know, some, some rights are more important than others. I think human rights advocates are generally quite good in sorting out what is a real human right and what is somebody's claim or rhetorical nonsense. So it's not that problematic. Pompeo is even saying there that he accepts that multilateral institutions create positive rights. That means rights in law. And so this idea that because everybody is claiming all sorts of rights, we don't know where to start is a bit feeble. The United States knows where to start. It can defend the right to life. It can defend the right not to be tortured. But it doesn't want to do that in its foreign policy. It wants to muddy the waters and say everybody's claiming a proliferation of rights, so we don't know where to start. But they do know perfectly well. And from time to time, United States foreign policy does defend human rights abroad quite effectively. Do you think it's still doing that? I think at the moment it's going through a, a wobbly patch, to use an English understatement. Um, look, at, for example, at the behaviour of the United States in arming Saudi Arabia for what's been happening in Yemen. I mean, even the United States Congress knows that this is wrong, and the State Department has a blind spot. That's what we should be talking about, not fussing and saying, oh, there are too many rights claims and people just make it up as they go along and it's all unelected experts in Geneva. That's not the problem. The problem is you have to stand by your principle. That's quite an interesting point, Ken, isn't it? Because we hear Mike Pompeo talking a little bit about selectivity of human rights, hierarchy of human rights. And yet when he launched this report, he was also very selective in in who he determined uh, were top of the rank of human rights abusers. And this was Venezuela, Cuba and uh, Iran. Saudi Arabia, of course, as Andrew mentioned there, was was never mentioned. Well, I I think that's absolutely correct. In other words, U.S. credibility on human rights in the days of Trump is is zero because it is so selective. You know, yes, the U.S. government does speak out about perceived adversaries, and the leading ones are indeed Iran, Venezuela, Cuba, and more recently China. But, you know, Trump can't help himself but embrace friendly autocrats, whether it's, you know, Putin of Russia, Erdogan of Turkey, Sisi of Egypt, the Saudi crown prince, Duterte of the Philippines, you know, um, Bolsonaro of Brazil, it just goes on and on. And this, you know, utter disregard for human rights when the leader of another government happens to be friendly toward Trump, um, utterly undermines the ability of the U.S. to be seen as a credible interlocutor on human rights. So the target of commentary can easily dismiss the statements coming from Washington. And of course, Washington has a much more difficult time bringing in other democracies as allies and promoting human rights because people don't want to have much to do with such an inconsistent, unprincipled US foreign policy. I I recently had an experience speaking to a, I won't name the person, but a very senior official whose job was to promote human rights. And we were talking about the recent crackdown in Hong Kong. And, the person agreed that it was horrible and they would be inclined to speak out, but they were reluctant to do so because Trump was speaking out. Now that's terrible. That's that's awful for the cause of human rights. And that shows what happens when you have such a selective, unprincipled approach to human rights. Nick, when this was launched in Geneva, it was almost a bit of a sad reflection of, of US diplomacy. We had a, a dial-in press conference um, and Nick and I w- w- were there, but it didn't actually make a splash, I think, the way the, the US diplomats here in Geneva had hoped it would. No. Um, you know, I, I think one of the points that you, you've, you've mentioned before, which was, you know, is this partly a, a reaction to the politicization of the Human Rights Council, 
I, I find that unconvincing. Um, I find the idea that, you know, the, the exception that people take to the Human Rights Council being a political body is rather, rather strange. And I think when you look at the composition of the commission itself and when you look at the content of the report, this is less about a reaction to the Human Rights Council or indeed the work of international bodies which the United States has had a significant role in helping to create. It seems to me to be more about uh, an administration trying to carve out an approach to human rights that sits well with a very con socially conservative constituency within the United States and with its own unilateralist approach to foreign policy, trying essentially to draw from so many international bodies that we've seen, Human Rights Council, the Climate Change uh, Treaty, and it's trying to create space more for itself to, to pursue a, a, an approach to foreign policy and human rights that, that doesn't square with the positions of, of foreign policy in the past and, and, and satisfies its yeah, unilateralist approach to affairs. It's not making that many waves, though, is it? We've not heard much diplomatic reaction from the US's traditional allies. You and I, I remember... I think, did not report on it. Okay, we're discussing it now because we have the luxury and inside Geneva to dig deep with these subjects. But I got the sense, I mean, the journalists at that virtual press conference basically had no questions. It was really a feeling of, oh, that's the US, that's that's the, the place they're in now. Ken, you had your hand up. Well, I, I think, um, you know, rights respecting governments, governments that promote human rights, they see the fundamental threat posed by this report. And, and I think that you know, rather than legitimize it by, by engaging with it seriously, they seem to be holding their breath and waiting for November, hoping that the administration changes. If it doesn't, and if this becomes US policy, it's extraordinarily dangerous because it is the same as China's policy. You know, China basically says, um, we're only going to choose the rights that are important to us. We, we say we're going to you know, focus on economic development, which actually isn't a right. They don't even focus on economic and social rights. They just say we're going to develop you know, the GDP. Um, but they certainly don't look at civil and political rights. And that kind of selectivity would be okay as far as the U.S. government is concerned because everybody gets to pick and choose. And so you know, the Saudi crown prince can say, I'm not going to focus on women's rights. The Egyptian government can say, I'm not going to respect the rights of Islamists. Um, you know, Duterte can say, I'm not going to respect the right, the right of life for people who I'm shooting in the streets. You know, it's a disaster for the human rights cause to allow this a la carte approach. And that, I think, is why so many governments are just you know, treating it with a, a barge pole to try to stay away as much as possible. Andrew, we heard part of a pattern, you know, the US doesn't cooperate with the International Criminal Court, it's withdrawn from the UN Human Rights Council. Do you think the UN's human rights protection bodies need to be more robust in defending themselves and making a case for themselves? Because we've seen the damage kind of populism can do in all sorts of sectors around the world. I think you would have had a, a more robust defense in Geneva if the report had actually said which bodies and which texts it was complaining about. It doesn't say what it is in the Human Rights Committee or in the Torture Committee or in the Racial Discrimination Committee that it doesn't like. It doesn't say which special rapporteur or independent expert or commission has gone too far. So there's nothing really to engage on. So I'm not sure one needs to be more robust because until they actually engage and explain what it is that these unelected bodies are doing, we don't need to respond. And as long as they're not undermining them by withdrawing funding or making their lives impossible, 
it's much more for U.S. domestic audience than actually effective international relations. Okay, we are, again, almost out of time. I've got one last question for each of you. We've looked a little bit at the the depth or the detail of this report. As we said, it hasn't actually had much of an impact. But going forward, maybe start with you, Nick. The US has intervened in the international human rights debate with this report. Is that a positive? Or do you think that given what's the content of this report, it might have been better not to do anything at all? Uh, I think, as we've discussed, really, that uh, the, the flaws in the report and the selectivity in its approach to human rights is, is potentially just damaging. So it's not, I, don't, I don't see a positive there. One can only hope that this isn't a document that actually goes through into a final form like this, or alternatively, you know, I think hopefully it might even actually just fade away. I mean, it has been challenged even in the New York courts, uh, so the commission itself could find itself disbanded. I, I just don't think that we can predict any future or significance to it before we have the results of the election. And we haven't had a detailed human rights position, I think, yet set out by the Biden administration. The indications are that its whole approach to foreign policy and human rights would be fundamentally very different to what we've seen from the Trump administration, at which point this document might offer comfort to people who who want to justify their own selective approach, but it doesn't necessarily represent, I think, a milestone in international discourse on human rights. What about you, Ken? Is it a a dangerous step towards a more divisive approach to human rights, or do you think it's going to be swiftly forgotten? My hope is that this draft never sees a final form and it's just swiftly forgotten. Um, But of course, a lot is going to depend on what happens in the elections in in November. Um, And frankly, it's also going to matter whether Pompeo sees this as an important ongoing endeavor because the primary audience, frankly, is um, his very conservative Christian um, constituency in the United States. And if he senses they really don't care that much, I could easily see this being forgotten because it is such a fundamentally devastating approach to the promotion of human rights. Um, even judging from, you know, historical U.S. inconsistency, this just takes it to a whole new dimension. Andrew Clapham, final word to you. I'm assuming you do welcome U.S. participation in the debate about human rights. The U.S. has contributed a lot over the decades. And so, I mean, if you want to look at this as a half-full exercise, it's good that at some points in the report they engage in the idea of human rights and the idea of a foreign policy. That Sometimes, though, this is um, not helpful, and I don't think that this report is going to be seized on either by academics or students of human rights or other states as the way forward, as has been suggested by the others in our panel. It's rather selective and it's rather dismissive of the Geneva architecture. And I think there's much more to human rights and multilateral system than the report suggests. 
Okay, well, that brings us sadly to the end of what was uh, another very interesting discussion. As I said, we obviously all always welcome United States participation in the human rights debate. This particular intervention hasn't elicited a particularly positive response, but perhaps there'll be another chance, perhaps before or after November, we don't know. My thanks to Andrew Clapham of the Graduate Institute, Ken Roth of Human Rights Watch, and my fellow journalist in Geneva, Nick Cumming-Bruce, contributor to the New York Times. I'm Imogen Folks. This has been Inside Geneva, a Swissinfo.ch production. And a reminder just before you go that you can hear more episodes of the Inside Geneva podcast series, including an in-depth discussion on the race for a vaccine against the coronavirus and a special documentary on the United Nations at 75. To subscribe to Inside Geneva, just go to swissinfo.ch forward slash eng forward slash Inside Geneva. Join us again next time and thank you all for listening. Discover science and innovation in Switzerland with the Swiss Connection podcast. In the current series, we visit CERN and explore what they're up to next in their quest to solve the mysteries of the universe. We uncover groundbreaking discoveries in a Roman archaeological site and get the first glimpse of an exciting supersonic plane powered by hydrogen. From the tiniest particles to the vastness of space, satisfy your scientific curiosity by listening to the Swiss Connection podcast for a mind-expanding experience with Swiss Info. Listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure to follow or subscribe to get your latest episode on time. <laughs>